Hello, and a very warm welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast. I'm Dave Baxter, one of the contributors to our newsletter. And today, my colleague David Thorpe and I are very pleased to be joined by Justin Onokasi, Head of Retail Investments for EMEA at Elgin. In recent years, Justin has presided, among other things, over the LNG multi-index range, a set of risk-rated funds which predominantly use passive vehicles. So he perhaps has even more of an insight than your average fund buyer into some of the conundrums that come with passive investing. We'll be diving into those and some other issues over the course of this discussion. So, Justin, thanks for for joining. Um, Obviously, passive investing is often seen as a space where the likes of retail investors can perhaps simply put money away over time and not really worry about what's going on, simply keep contributing, not think too much about it. But you, to an extent, are, of course, paid to worry about the ins and outs of uh, using these funds. Um, And to start off, I thought it'd be interesting to touch on some of the kind of big, big concerns that are raised about passives and that you've raised yourself. Um, one of these is concentration. Big tech has long been dominant in the US indices, and that's not really going away. What's your take on that? And you know, if you're predominantly using passives, how can you actually kind of navigate your way around that problem? It's really important to recognize where we are in terms of the overall global economy. And where we are right now, I've never seen as much uncertainty around the near-term economic forecasts. So usually there's lots of uncertainty around forecasts in 12, 18 months, two years' time. But now, due to inflation, due to the central bank reaction function, due to the virus, um, there are huge amounts of uncertainty around that near-term economic outlook. What does that mean? it means there's lots of uncertainty. And where there is lots of uncertainty, it means that you you would expect volatility in markets. And as you quite rightly pointed out, over the last few years, you've seen this increase, a significant increase in stock concentration within US equities, where a handful of stocks have become larger and larger and larger within that US equity index. And it's not just that, actually. The US equity index has become a larger and larger proportion of the global index. So, um, you know, what can you do about this? Well, the, the, the first thing the first thing I just stress is that for a number of advisors and clients, they don't fully understand how much risk they've actually, take, they're actually taken. Now, five stocks make up over 25% of the total US index. What does that mean? So a third of performance in 2021 was driven by six stocks. A third of performance of a 500 stock index was driven by six stocks. In January of this year, almost 50% of the falls were again caused by six stocks. The big challenge we have is a lot of this uh, stock concentration, people just don't realize it's accidental risk-taking. So I think it's down to the industry. It's down to investors like myself, down to journalists not like you, to inform clients about this stock concentration risk and what they can do about it. 
So one of the things that we're doing right across our portfolios, given that we invest in indices, is we're spreading that risk over lots of different regions, reducing the US overall and spreading that risk over different regions, therefore reducing that stock concentration risk. I think it's quite reasonable for an advisor or an investor not to realize if they're investing in a 500 stock portfolio to get diversification, that five stocks are dominating risk. So I'll just stress again, this concentration conundrum is a real challenge for investors, particularly as we move into this period of intense uncertainty. Justin, how, how do you um, how do you view, I suppose, hype, almost hybrid products that have emerged in recent years, for example, around around smart beta, because a lot of that concentration risk that you've that you've highlighted obviously relates to to market cap weightings in, in indices and traditional passive obviously uh weights by by market cap but if if one uh uses smart beta to um uh, get get a weighting via something else is is there a role for that do you think i think so i think that the if you look back in history there are certain factors that have led to differentiated performance to market cap one of them is value when the opposite of that is clearly growth small caps, momentum, low volatility. You know, these are all areas and quality. These are all areas that those factors do have a significant predictive power versus a market cap index. So actually being able to take advantage of those factors allows the traditional index investor almost to be more active relative to market cap. And I think that is fundamentally quite important. The more choice you have, I think it has to be has to be a good result. And likewise, how do you feel about um, you know? I mean, I, I feel like now the the case has been made resoundingly well for kind of using passives for so called mainstream exposures, but perhaps there's a bit more um, disagreement among fund buyers when it comes to more niche areas. You know, like obviously small caps, active funds have fared much better. You know, do you? Do you find yourself kind of trying to add a bit of differentiation, a bit of diversification via some of those kind of smaller mid-cap trackers, or is that does that not seem such a good way to play it? It's a really good question. So I think you need to go back to first principles and say, what does the investor really want? Um, and a big reason why we launched multi the multi-index strategies was that investors wanted something that was cost effective but still active in terms of asset allocation however you know clearly some investors are willing to pay more for the potential of outperformance there are some areas where we will look to go active um, and we're not indexed for the sake of it even in multi-index areas such as global high yield where the average manager actually tends to do quite well versus the index. Global credit is another one where the average manager has a higher persistency of our performance. Then there are some areas which simply can't be managed on an index basis, right? Or are not managed. There's no availability, such as direct property. And we can debate direct property um, or, or for, for, for a long time, but you know you can't really manage that on an index basis. Um, but I think it really depends on how much the investor is willing to pay for the potential of our performance. We actually have some, some propositions which are you know more active, more in, in the more active space, 
which again uh, tend to be priced uh, at, at, at a higher level. So it depends on how, how much you're willing to pay, but also um, the persistency of outperformance in each of those markets. That, that must be quite an interesting balance to try and strike within, say, the multi-index range, because obviously a big part of the appeal of propositions like, like that is the kind of relatively low or very low cost. And I suppose if you do find yourself kind of moving more into areas like alternatives, that's going to kind of push it up. I mean, do you, do you have kind of... Um, limits or general rules um, with which you try and kind of keep costs to a certain level? Not so much. I mean, we'll tend to invest in uh, LGIM index products uh, and therefore there's no double charging. I think that's that's fundamentally quite important because LGIM manages £400 billion in index fund money. It means that we've been able to create index in, indices in really quite different areas, you know, such as infrastructure, such as REITs, clean water, clean energy, uh, forestry, we've got forestry baskets in, in the multi-index funds. You know, these are all areas where typically the normal, the usual fund of index funds wouldn't go into, but we're able to tap into those areas given that scale and the wealth of index heritage that Elgin has. Um, as, as you're creating all of the, those new indices, but also, as you mentioned, you, you do passive, but with active asset allocation and um, mm. how, how do you think about about risk and, and i mean that in, in two ways firstly when you're creating an indices in forestry or something given that it's a relatively new asset class how do you think about the risk profile of that but more broadly given the uh, unusual nature of the world given the intense concentration you highlighted earlier in equity markets around a few stocks how do you think about risk generally? How 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 can has that changed over the duration of your career? Yes, I've already mentioned that uncertainty around the economic cycle. So if you think about risk and risk assets, I suppose the most important thing in the portfolios is whether you're risk on or risk off. And you know what drives risk assets? There's really three key things: the economic cycle and where you are in the economic cycle, valuations how cheap or expensive risk assets are and systemic risks coming to your point. Uh, and at the moment, from an economic cycle perspective, you've got this huge amounts of uncertainty. So there's an uncertainty in terms of economic cycle. When you think about the valuation risks, I would argue that, you know, clearly there are some areas of the market which look more expensive. We've already touched on some of them, such as tech. However, there are some areas across the world, and we're actually positive on tech, by the way, probably worth stressing, because of the growth rates and the longevity of tech. But we, we think it's really important to spread your risk over tech, technology stocks rather than hold one or two in a concentrated way. Um, but there are some areas where it's cheaper, right? Emerging markets is a, an area where, you know, incredible amounts of growth as, as the global economy uh, reopens, but the, the valuations versus developed markets do look quite attractive. And equities versus bonds look quite attractive as well. Systemic risks, you know, clearly there are some geopolitical risks uh, and, and, so, and, and so on and so forth. But actually, from a systemic risk perspective, we actually believe that we're in a position where actually relative to the last few years, where systemic risks are probably lower than they have been historically. Uh, when it comes to individual strategies and the port for, uh, uh, that we add to multi-index or our multi-asset range, there are a number of risks you've got to consider. Active manager risk illiquidity risk, whether you're in the risk profile or, or, or not, because given 
you know, the, the funds are designed to be and sit within risk profiles. That's vitally important as well. ESG risks is another one that, 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 that that's, that's, come, that's come onto the agenda. And then finally, as we've already spoken about a number of times already on this podcast, concentration risks. So as you put together your portfolio, it's, it's about not only looking at the individual risks of your asset classes, but also the summation of risks as you put all those asset classes together. Um, this perhaps slightly flippant, but I, I suppose another risk that is um, quite present for kind of fund buyers and investors in general is the whole idea of career risk. And in, in uh, <laughs> at least, say, I don't know, the last 15 years or so, you know, yeah, it, it's interesting we're talking about the US um, and perhaps... I think you can argue perhaps the situation is different, right? You know, we've got a much more macro-focused discussion at the minute, and you talked about some of the, the kind of pressures coming in. Um, but e- even five years ago, say, we we could have been having a discussion with someone about kind of perhaps spreading away from the US. Um, but that's been... Mm-hmm. It feels like that's always been quite a difficult thing to square with the likes of mm-hmm. clients because the US has kind of stormed ahead. I mean, how do you... As a firm and as a kind of proposition, how do you kind of deal with that? Do you find do you find a lot of pushback if you're kind of not kind of going much more heavily into you know what's been the leading market for for so long now? Yeah, so over the last I think it's nine years, the US has outperformed other equity markets in seven out of the last nine. So you've had this incredible persistency of our performance. I, I think the answer to this is diversification, diversification, diversification. Mm-hmm. It's actually finding other areas of growth and spreading your risk into those areas. Mm-hmm. The, the, the argument to hold the US isn't one of what's going to give you the best return. It's about how much risk are you willing to take to get that return. And I think fundamentally, when I speak to clients, they understand that. That said, we've able we've been able to keep pace with managers which have a big chunk in the US by spreading risk into areas such as last year. You know, the best performer last year across our universe was global REITs. So actually investing in areas such as REITs, infrastructure, you mentioned forestry and so on and so forth. Actually managing your bond portfolio as well, which is vitally important from a multi-asset perspective. But it's important as a multi-asset investor, I think, to not only not to put all your chips on black and to spread your risk across the different regions, particularly in this period of uncertainty. Um, so uh, is are the next five years going to be different? Uh, I don't know, uh, is the answer in terms of return. However, I've taken the, I, we've taken the, the, um, the decision to, to not take excessive risk to get those returns. So think, thinking about as, as the next five years, um, if we are in a position where um, interest rates are higher than they are now and higher than they have been for the last five years, if we are in a position where inflation is, is higher, um, well, we can't know what's, what's going to happen. Uh, do you think it's inevitable that we'll have more volatility in, in the next five years? even if we don't know what the source or consequence of that volatility will will be? I do think uncertainty does create um, volatility. Um, And I I think that fundamentally there are three things 
that you can do to try and navigate that uncertainty and therefore volatility? The first one uh, we've spoken about a lot already is diversification. Uh, the second one is really to manage your cost down. And whether you're fund of index funds or fund of active funds, model portfolios, and I say we, we manage all of them, um, it's so important to keep your cost down. The only thing you're guaranteed in fund management is that cost will detract from returns year after year after year. But importantly, that volatility that you mentioned uh, can create opportunities. So actually, you will get over the next few years huge disconnects in the market. And I think it's so important uh, to be active and try to, first of all, manage those risks, but also seek out those opportunities when that volatility occurs. There is one point I just want to mention, because uh, we haven't really spoken so much about this, about inflation. Uh, and inflation in itself creates, again, a huge amounts of uncertainty. As economists, industry experts, we have been, we have to put our hands up and say that we have been horrifically bad, horrifically awful in assessing what the inflation rate is going to be. You know, if you go back to the 1990s, there's a per annum miss or underestimation of inflation of 0.7% per annum. If you add that up, it comes up to over over 14% if you, cumulatively. You know, that's a huge amount of uh, forecast misses. So if you look forward, I think it's very difficult to say that all of a sudden we're going to get better at forecasting. I think you're still going to have those challenges of inflation misses. However, however, inflation is clearly going to be a lot higher over the next five years than it has been over the previous five years. So I do think, again, that's an added amount of uncertainty that comes into our asset allocation and portfolio decisions. Mm, interesting. So it sound, well, for a start, I suppose it sounds like you're um, perhaps not sitting in team transitory, but maybe we don't have to get into that. But um, uh, if we do see more volatility, um, and I suppose even generally speaking, I'd be interested to know, you know, how, how tactical do you find yourself being in terms of um, asset allocation? You know, how much turnover is there? Because on the one hand, I suppose one way to limit costs is to um, simply not do much on that front. And, you know, if you look at the DFMs we track, generally, you know, month to month or even quarter to quarter, they tend to not massively shake things up. But perhaps we are coming into a time where you do need to be a bit more more nimble. I'd agree with that. So typically across the multi-index, multi-manager and model portfolio ranges, uh, we'll tend to take a medium-term view. So we'll tend to look through short-term noise and try and look a year out at the very minimum in terms of structuring our asset allocation positions. I think the challenge is now you may be able to look a year out, but prices may correct a lot quicker than that. So actually, even though you may be taking a, a one-year-plus time horizon, actually price discovery is simply happening a lot quicker. So you may have to be more nimble, uh, more agile in navigating market positions and the overall economy. How, how do you think about um, maybe over the past uh, decade or so, uh, as, as a consequence, I guess, 
of the lack of correlation in many ways between bonds and equities, we've seen lots of things rise up under the under the banner, very broad banner of alternatives. You mentioned in, in one of your earlier answers that Elgin have been able to um, create indices for things such as forestry. Um, but how do you think about alternatives within an asset allocation perspective? Because as you say, the asset allocation that you do is, is active. Yes, yeah, so there's there's definitely a strategic position that we have across our alternative allocation. Uh, alternatives, the aim of them is to try and give you a different risk and return from your traditional equity and bond portfolios. Uh, as you rightly pointed out, uh, there is a risk with higher inflation uh, and rates going up that you do get this almost the worst nightmare for a multi-asset portfolio, which is bonds and equities moving in the same direction. And you saw that in, you see at the start of this year, you saw it um, at periods last year. It's something that we track really vigilantly because as I say, that is almost the worst nightmare for a multi-asset portfolio, that your bonds don't give you protection relative to your equity portfolios. Um, so areas such as, infrastructure such as REITs, such as forestry, we think do help to give a different return stream from the equity and bond market. It's really important to recognize though, it's not all the time. There may be periods where, you know, rates are going up you know, really quickly and everything correlates. It may be, there may be situations like, you know, March, 2020, where everything's going down the market, you're just selling everything. And therefore, they tend to correlate um, more than they, more than the kind of historical correlation. So it's really important not just to look at correlations, but also to really try and understand co-behavior. And co-correlations tend to be unstable. So the correlations tend to move around. Co-behavior tends to reflect and repeat time and time again. So if you have a liquidity crisis, we know that all asset classes are going to go down. If you have you know, rates going up, typically the rate sensitive asset classes will all react in, in a very similar way. So really going back into history and trying to analyze those co-behaviors really allow you to kind of position and size, I think, the alternative portfolio the right way. Justin, I'm, I'm conscious we're perhaps approaching time, but um, I just wanted to pick up on one point you, you mentioned earlier. You know, you talked about um, ESG. And you have made some interesting comments relatively recently about perhaps, you know, ESG, obviously the valuations have kind of moved relatively high and there's been lots of money going in there. Um, but also we discussed where active and passive doesn't work. You know, ESG passives have had quite a lot of criticism, you know, even the kind of so-called stricter indices like MSCI, SRI still will end up holding, you know, things like traditional energy shares. You know, where, where do you stand on that? You know, do you do you still believe passives are kind of an appropriate way into that space or is it just an area where, where you need to stop quicker? It's a really good question. So I would break this down into a number of points. So the first point is, as I say, you look at the average cost of ESG propositions and they are significantly higher than non-ESG propositions. Therefore, as an industry, we need to think of more cost-effective ways of delivering 
the the products that clients want because otherwise clients will simply walk away and say we're not willing to pay that much for esg propositions uh, when it comes to, to index funds within uh, esg clearly there's, there's, there's lots of different flavors uh, so there are some very you know strong rules-based uh, index strategies which tilt away from the sinners and into the winners uh, I, I would argue that they are they are what they are. You know, if you, if you want those types of products, um, you will buy them. And, and actually, a lot of our clients have said, actually, we want uh, ESG within multi-index. And therefore, we've created the Future World Multi-Index Funds, which have those tilts away from the sinners and into the winners. And they've gone down really well with, with, with clients, particularly relative to other more expensive uh, ESG propositions and clearly we've got an active overlay on that so we're looking at you know where the valuations are and trying to allocate across the different regions and across the different asset classes uh, 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 accordingly. Index managers clearly hold significant amounts in some of these stocks so Elgin holds you know close to four percent of the FTSE all share so it means that we're always at the table and always engaging with businesses so an index fund players have have a obligation to vote against um boards that aren't being diverse aren't do not have strong governance are you know flouting their, 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 their climate change rules so i think that again is vitally important the engagement side and then and then, and then finally uh, i would just stress uh, that there is there is definitely valuation concerns um, in, in, in some stocks as there has been you know, a huge amount of money pouring into this area. Uh, and again, I think we as an industry just need to educate our clients and uh, so they fully understand how much they're paying from a valuation perspective uh, for some of, the, some of these stocks and, and therefore uh, just reiterating, are you willing to pay that much uh, to get that uh, get, get that particular exposure. But to kind of conclude, I think it fundamentally depends on where you sit as a client, how much you're willing to pay, and how much uh, exposure to ESG you actually want. Oh, last point, sorry, very last point, is we've seen a huge amount of focus on the E, the environmental side, and, and clearly that's been that's been huge with COP26 and uh, the part uh, the uh, and Paris, you know, a, a, a number of years ago, the S is going to become more important. The social side is going to become more important. So I think it's really important that we, as an industry, uh, you know, really drive that change across the stocks that we hold through engagement. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see how that develops and, you know, what we see in terms of behaviour and, and products and, um, yeah, lots of lots of developments to monitor, I think. Um, but yeah, as I um, as I alluded to, we are unfortunately out of time, but I think very interesting point on which to wrap up. Um, thanks very much to both Justin and David for joining today. And thank you for listening. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.